short-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government, the government love, the government love, the government love, the government the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, attorney and former deputy assistant to President Trump, May Mailman. Hey, uh, it's good to be back. Yeah, I'm glad to have you back. I'm I'm looking forward to yet another interesting week. It seems like they're they're all interesting weeks just for different reasons. But as usual, there is a lot we have to talk about. I mean, there's the uh, we'll, we'll get into Medicare price negotiations and uh, the story of, of uh, Senator McConnell and that unfortunate uh, uh, freeze up and what that might mean. Donald Trump's trial dates and how they affect or may not affect, I don't know, the Republican primary process, the Republican presidential race in general, uh, uh, possible Biden impeachment inquiry, uh, and and probably more. Well, not all of that in the regular show. Certainly, we're going to get to as much of it as we can. And so without further ado, let's just get to it, starting with the Medicare price negotiations. This week, uh, the Biden administration announced the first 10 drugs that will be subject to these price negotiations. And it's really a major step forward or backward, depending on how you want to look at it, in what's been a long fight to allow Medicare to use its significant buying power to negotiate lower prices. And this is made possible for the first time by a provision of the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year. Now, for a little bit of history, Medicare first started offering comprehensive prescription drug coverage when Medicare Part D was enacted. This was in 2003. It went into effect in 2006. But as part of that original legislation in 2003, Medicare was banned from directly negotiating drug prices with, uh, with pharmaceutical companies. Now, looking to right now, the drugs that were selected this week, they are among those with the highest total spending in Medicare. Last year, for instance, they cost Medicare recipients a combined $3.4 billion out of pocket, cost the Medicare program around $50 billion. So negotiations are scheduled to begin this year and at the end of this year, but then going, uh, the reductions not going into effect until 2026. And there will be more drugs subject to negotiation uh, announced in the coming years. The CBO says that over the next decade, the program as a whole should save the government somewhere around $98.5 billion. But that's if this goes into effect, because there are a number of legal challenges to the program that have been brought by the pharmaceutical industry. I counted eight of them uh, as of yesterday. Uh, they various, they allege all kinds of things uh, that it violates the First Amendment by forcing companies to implicitly endorse fair prices they don't believe to be fair. There's the Fifth Amendment's due process clause, the Fifth Amendment's taking clause, the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment, the separation of powers and non-delegation doctrines, and that they'll say that Congress can't delegate its powers to other entities. And there's more than that, but those are sort of the greatest hits, uh, if you will. Uh, We'll get to that. But May, I I thought we'd start with the policy stuff itself. What do you what do you think about Medicare negotiating drug prices? 
So I don't see any proposal here that is a negotiation, so I'm not going to call it a negotiation. These are price controls. So the reason it's not a negotiation and President Trump was the one who first named the negotiation. So I think that's that's where that phrase comes from. But um, basically, the government sets the price. And if the company doesn't accept it, then the government takes 95 percent of their drug sales. So that's not a negotiation. That's just simply a price control. Um, so I. I have not seen an example of price controls that has been beneficial to uh, the economy, beneficial to health. Like, I, I don't see that this working out, but very specifically, we can very much screw this up. So I know that there's been this narrative because big pharma is bad, bad, no matter whether you're on the right, left or the center, like they they have abused you in some manner. Um, that it's OK to go beat up on them. But if you actually think about what's happening with drug prices, we're doing okay in the sense that in 2018, actually, drug prices decreased. The inflation rate for prescription drugs has been zero over the past four months. And uh, in 2022 to 2023, it was only 2.8%, which is well below the general inflation level. Our drug spending as a percentage of our health expenditures is lower um, than the average of at least 11 other developed countries. Like we, the average price of drugs has fallen in, in a lot large part because of generics. So we have a pretty robust competitive market once a generic enters the market. And even when a new expensive drug enters the market, the research shows that other drugs that are even name brand in that same therapeutic class, the, the price of that drug goes down because there's been a new drug. So all that to say is, um, yes, the list prices for drugs are high. Yes, pharma makes a lot of money. I think uh, the narrative is that their uh, margins are higher than in any other industry, but things can get much worse. Um, and I do think that this policy is going to make things get worse. So the Council of Economic Advisors a few years ago, when this policy was proposed but not passed, so that was in 2019, they estimated that this would keep 100 drugs off the market over the next decade due to reduced R&D spending, and it would reduce the average American's lifespan. Uh, there's studies that show for every 10% decrease in prices, there's a 5 to 6% decrease in R&D investment. So we're basically losing new drugs on the market. We're losing years off of our lives. Most of the drugs in the, in the development pipeline are cancer drugs. So there goes uh, Biden's cancer moonshot or whatever he calls it. Um, and generics, which have done, I think, the most work to lower drug prices, they are not going to enter the market because the prices for some drugs are going to be so low that generics are not going to be able to undercut them. And so you're going to lose that competition. Well, there's there's a lot there and, and a lot that I 
Well, some that I disagree with entirely, other bits that maybe I feel I want to add some context to. So this is a great topic for us to be talking about. I wanted to start with with your your initial point about this not being a negotiation. And I, I agree with you to a point on that. You're right that it's not a classic negotiation. Right where where essentially you you barter back and forth and you find uh, you find the middle point, but but in one sense uh, it's not quite as straightforward as as you mentioned it because how it works is that CMS will make a centers for Medicare service they will make an initial offer the manufacturer has a month to make a counter offer now both the initial offer and the counter offer have to have justifications the inflation reduction act uh, provision doesn't allow just any kind of crazy price to be set. But the point being is that there is at least the potential for some back and forth. But you're right that in the end, CMS can just say, no, this is the final price that we are going to offer to you. And it is a take it or leave it sort of thing. Now, the, the, the leave it part, if a, if a drug manufacturer decides to leave it for that particular drug, there is an excise tax and that starts at 65% of U.S. sales. They can go up to as much as 95%. But alternately, of course, a drug manufacturer can say, well, we don't want to participate in this market under these conditions and pull out of the Medicare and Medicaid market. So, I mean, clearly there are elements here that are not classic negotiation elements. But but to me, I guess I, I want to hit on this uh, particularly because it seems to me that kind of a fundamental tenet of conservative or of economics in general is that Buyers should be allowed to negotiate prices with sellers. And we can disagree about whether or not this is a true negotiation. But in one sense, both the buyer and the seller can walk away here. And so I'm wondering, why isn't this a real negotiation in your mind? Well, because you're negotiating with like a holder of a bazooka. So it would be one thing if the it was the buyer's own money or if there was some sort of competition in the market you, you could either do like there were different government health care programs or some, something like that but here medicare is an entitlement for uh you know all americans over a certain age and so in that case it's like it it is the monopoly you can i think go through a lot of loopholes contacting the Social Security Administration, trying to like not accept your entitlement and do private insurance and all the rest. Um, but so you you have the government there with enormous power that it didn't earn, right, that it just has. Then you have money that isn't the government's. I mean, Medicare is spending more money than it takes in. so. You have this tremendous buying power that also isn't earned, and then the punishment is is totally uh, it, it's it's like drug ending because if they decide not to take the price because they're not going to be able to make a sufficient return in order to, you know, like make new drugs and otherwise continue the enormous cost of their business, then they lose access to that market entirely, which, which again, the government didn't earn and doesn't really pay for. 
Um, so there's just so many elements, I think, that take this out of anything that you would normally have as a negotiation, which is why the current Medi- Medicare Part D sort of tries to get at that because there is negotiation going on. When you are in the Medicare Part D program, you have access to many different uh, like insurers and they compete on price and what their offerings are. And then those insurers negotiate with um, the, the drug companies. So there is negotiation going on. And then there is choice from the consumer of which program do I want to participate in. And 80% of people who participate in the program are good. They're happy with it. So I'm not saying necessarily that everything is perfect right now as far as drug prices. But if you're taking something that is at least (laughs) very few government programs, I would bet, are 80% satisfaction. But you're taking something that does have some amount of competition, negotiation, um, satisfaction, and you are replacing it with a price control mechanism that might have some fig leaf negotiation tactics around it, there is a lot to be lost there. I, I wonder about, I see what you're saying, but I wonder about the counter argument. It seems like there's a, a, a problem some people would say when you have, I mean, Medicare is a monopoly. They do, though, they're a, they're a huge they're a huge buying force, right? So it's called a, a monopsony when the buyer has that kind of control. And Medicare, I think, accounts for something like a third of all prescription drug spending. Private insurance is around 50% uh, the last data. So, but that, that's, that's a crushing amount of purchasing power. But on the other end, I think people would say, well, if a drug company comes out with something that no one else has, well, they have a monopoly on that as well. And so it seems like this is a, uh, an argument where it's okay to have a monopoly on one end, but not on the other end. And if buyers in general should be able to use their leverage to negotiate lower prices, why is that different just because the buyer happens to be the United States government as opposed to, say, Amazon or Walmart? Because all the time they they do all kinds of deals and push down prices. And so I think that's why in, in polling you know, something like 70, 80 percent of people say, yes, we're for Medicare price negotiations because they feel that that sort of that sort of logic should apply across the board. Well, I guess it's it's different if you are a company that has made a product that's very, very useful. Um, you are competing. You only have a few years to make money off of your product because the generic market um, can come in. I don't know the number of years, Um, but you all the R&D, you invested the R&D, right? You earned that product. So that's, I think, different than the government, which earned nothing um, and isn't even, like I said, it isn't even paying for its own program. Um, And And not only that, even when you do have your new product that's very fancy that everyone likes, you are subject to competition from all the rest of the pharmaceutical companies, not only in the U.S., but, you know, to the extent that there are uh, companies 
abroad who are competing. I mean, there there is competition there. When you are the government, there is you you just have money falling from the sky that actually hasn't even been created yet because again we're spending money we don't have um to put this pressure on and and so if we want to just say is it good for the government to set the prices for drugs that it you know just the take it or leave it i think we can have that conversation but negotiation with some something this powerful that has no competitor, I I just I struggle to view it as gotcha. as a true okay. negotiation. I, I think I, I think we have sort of a a fundamental difference on this, but I do think that both of us sort of articulated the reasons for our views on that. And there are other aspects of this I want to talk about with you. Uh, for instance, I I think of what I most almost might want to call a Trumpian argument for this, because I recall during during the Trump presidency, uh, in, in many instances, uh, especially with, say, NATO or something like that, saying, we're subsidizing these bums who we're paying in all this so they can enjoy the fruits of our... And, and it seems to me when you look at all of the countries that do price negotiations, Canada, France, Germany, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, the list goes on and on and on, that, well, in the argument of, well, they get lower prices and they get the innovation from these international drug companies. Well, isn't that innovation that we're paying for? And they're so, I mean, it, it seems to me that we're, they're free riding off of us. And shouldn't we, it seems to me there's a Trumpian argument to be made essentially to say, listen, we should force these companies to lower the prices to America first. And in fact, I think that was uh kind of a position that Donald Trump had up until like 2020 or so. Oh, I think he probably still has it. I mean, the guy is a total nationalist and I think would just say, don't give any drugs to any other company or countries. Um, so I, I guess I would just divorce the problem and, and also recognize that because, because companies are able to recover their investment in the United States. They are based in the United States and we have, and, and I wish that actually more were based in the United States. I remember during the beginning of COVID when we we're trying to get various um, uh, like whatever mm -hmm. therapeutics yeah, right. for COVID, oftentimes the products that we would need would, would purely be manufactured overseas. And that, I think, was a real problem um, because it's you can't just get FDA approval. You can't just move things into the United States quickly when we're like this very regulated market. So the, there is a benefit to being a wealthy country that does pay a little bit more for um, drugs, although not as a percentage of our healthcare spending. Um, we pay more for everything um, than other countries because it incentivizes companies to be here and having those jobs here, having that tax revenue here, I think is beneficial. So, um, and there's just no way that poor countries are going to end up paying more for drugs in the, like at, in the U S we, we just, pay a lot of money for our health care. That is, I think, a separate problem. And free riding is a separate problem 
then should we be having price controls? And if we want to cut down on the free riding problem, maybe that's an exercise in, I don't know, tariffs or in um, some sort of foreign affairs issue or um, taxing companies that do this type of practice. Like you can, you can address the free riding business model, I think, without taking out competition, you know, and, and basically flipping on its head the drug market, which I do not think is perfect. Um, Big Pharma, like I said, has offended everyone, but I don't think price controls are the way to go. And, you know, I, I, I think before you, you mentioned the arguments on, on the left that talk about how uh, it usually called obscenely profitable big farmers. I don't know if, if there's a point in which a profits become obscene, certainly not if you're the one profiting. But I, I do want to point out that some of those analyses are, I think they use not bogus numbers, but selective numbers. A lot of those numbers on the profit of the pharmaceutical industry focus on uh, what are called gross profits, which don't include operating expenses and things like R&D and so forth. And if you just look at gross profits, I believe the last numbers I checked yesterday for industry profit margins, pharma is number four out of all industries. And I think there are like 96 industry categories. And see that, it's like, wow. But if you factor in operating expenses, they're still doing really well, around 18.35%, which is almost double the industry-wide of all industries profit margin of just over 9%. But so I guess what I'm saying is that there certainly is some room for them to make a little less money and not necessarily have it affect innovation. And I think reasonable people can disagree where that point is. And so I kind of find myself in the middle point. I don't, I don't believe that, 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 that those 2019 CEA things about how if we force lower prices that uh, can't, all these drugs are not going to be uh, not going to be developed. But I do think there is a point at which those prices can be too low. I just think this program was structured in such a way and focused on such a small class of drugs. I mean, you have to, drugs have to meet very specific criteria to be included. They have to be among the most expensive drugs to Medicare. They have to be drugs that aren't facing generic competition. There are a number of other categories. So I really think that the impact of this will be much more limited on the pharmaceutical industry than they really want to admit. And, and understandably so. It's not their job to say, well, this is fair. We're going to take less profits, but we'll make it work. I wouldn't expect them to make that argument. Yeah. And part of, part of my issue with this program, I think, is just there are some bizarre choices here. Some of the drugs that they selected are the most expensive because they're the most popular. So sure. yeah. Medicare just pays the most, not because not necessarily because the drug is overpriced. I see. OK. But because it is used a lot because it is better than the other drugs. And um, so I, I, I think that I would have wanted a different metric to say, let's go uh, go after whatever the drugs that are overpriced, they have too much of a margin, uh, something like that, rather than these drugs are the most popular and the most used and therefore the, the highest cost to Medicare. So that that I think is just a bizarre choice. I think also because this doesn't um, kick in until 2026, um, 
I think some of the drugs by by that point will have only one year or something like that until a um, generic comes on the market. So what are we doing? You know, we're going to that that seems to also be strange because the price is going to basically fall off one second after you finish this quote unquote negotiation. Um, I think uh, one other element of the program is one that applies to all drugs, not just the selected drugs for the price setting, which is it limits the uh, price increase for all Medicare drugs to the inflation rate. Um, That is predicted, even according to the CBO, to just increase prices straight off the bat because companies are going to be concerned that they're not going to get, be able to increase their prices as they need to. Right, so you set your baseline higher. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes they're, sense. And, and I, I think that is a really bad incentive, um, especially when you do see the inflation rates of these drugs being flat currently. Like, there's no need to add that scare tactic. Um, and the price that they're looking at that has to track inflation is the average manufacturer price. And that's the other thing about just this whole drug pricing world is when we're talking about costs, it's hard to actually know what we're talking about because you have these list prices, manufacturer prices, but none of that actually ends up being what the consumer pays because you've got all of these rebates. So I think there's also just a lot of confusion about does does monitoring some list price and whether that tracks inflation, does that have any bearing on what's going, what the consumer ends up feeling? And, and so anyway, I just, I find it to be a problematic program. Um, Maybe there will be some benefits that come out of it, but my fear is that the harms will be greater than the benefits. Got it. Pulling back even further from a policy perspective, uh, in the last the last year for I think that I was able to find comprehensive data 2021 Medicare spent uh, according to data I found 378 billion dollars on drugs and, and I'm wondering if just that in and of itself if you see that as a problem and if so is it a problem that uh, is amenable to some sort of a government solution or or minimization or action or whatever you want to call it so. I am of the mind that a a large portion of Americans' drug spending is avoidable because we as Americans live uniquely unhealthy lives (laughs) instead of lifestyle changes. Um, The way that just the whole system is structured is that we are incentivized to to take the drug because the patient doesn't pay a huge amount for it. You know, we do have a sort of bizarre universal healthcare system that is confusing and people don't know what they're owed and doctors have no idea what prices are because doctors aren't responsible for them and there's so many middlemen. So when I when I like that my first instinct of are we paying too much for drugs, it's like it's almost impossible for me to say yes or no to that because I'd have to know of that percentage of spending, what if it was avoidable? What if what what should have been weight loss instead of uh, drug treatment? And so, yeah, I would say that we spend an enormous amount too much on uh, 
drugs, um, but personal that like yeah, there's, there's a, a there's yeah. a yeah. I I, I mean I agree. Yeah, we, we we totally agree on that. I mean, when you take a look at the international OECD comparisons, one thing that jumps out at you certainly is that Americans spend way more per capita on drugs, more than double the OECD average. But you're right. When you take a look at the classes of drugs that account for the most spending, there are cardiovascular, diabetes, like like you said, lifestyle, at least lifestyle related or mitigatable to a certain extent. And these other countries, in many instances, don't have the sort of uniquely unhealthy lifestyles that that we do in America. So I think I think you're certainly right on that. And, and the answer, the first answer shouldn't be take a drug for something necessarily. But in this country, oftentimes it, that does seem to be where we where we go to first for that kind of quick fix to a lot of things. So we yeah, do so agree on that. Charlie, I would almost say like, like, well, what what if I mean, this isn't my policy proposal that I'd run for any sort of office on. But like, what if the consumer had to bear the entire weight of no pun? intended um of the cost of their drugs and actually was given a choice i mean okay you can spend ten thousand dollars a year on this drug which will make you have to take this other drug which will make you have to take this other drug and then you'll probably get depressed and so you have to take this other drug so we'll put ten thousand a year and you can either do that or you can lose 50 pounds and like just really like having cost help drive some of these decisions, but cost does not drive our decisions because you're never presented with costs in the doctor's office. The doctors have no idea what the costs are. It's some sort of, so anyway. No, I, um, I, I agree with you in principle. Maybe we should spend more money on uh, drugs. You know? no, no, I mean, I, I agree with you in principle that the incentives both for consumers of healthcare and for the healthcare industry are totally messed up. And that if you don't have your incentives right, everything downstream from that tends to fall apart. I think in terms of specific proposals, there's maybe a little to a lot of distance between us, but I think on the fundamentals, we tend to see these things uh, at least in, in a somewhat similar light. But I also want to talk, uh, uh, get into your expertise uh, in the law, because I mentioned earlier, there are a bunch of legal challenges on pretty much pick an amendment or pick a part of the constitution. It seems like the pharmaceutical industry has found someone to make a challenge. My sense of these uh, as a non-attorney, but, you know, someone who's dabbled in this stuff for a lot of years, is that I don't know that they necessarily get anywhere. They seem to be at best kind of shaky, but I think they certainly could potentially delay the entire process. And my thinking is that even if they're not successful, if the pharmaceutical industry can delay implementation of something by, heck, even a few months, that could be a significant benefit to their bottom line. But but maybe there is more to it in your mind. And I wanted to get your take on how you think the courts are likely to respond to these arguments. And there are a lot of them, obviously. There are a lot of them. And when you do see so many legal arguments, it does make me wonder, like, if if any one provision was particularly strong, why would you throw the rest at it. And so because there's just every single complaint has 10 different claims that either indicates one thing, this is a super, super illegal program, or this is a super bad program and people are just trying to throw things at it. And my sense talking to people in this industry is that it's a little bit more of the latter. Um, 
because at the end of the day, like Medicare is a price setting organization like that. That is that's what it's there for. And so you can complain that this is bad and this is we don't like it. But at the you just this is the program. This is where we live. So um, the the I guess arguments that speak the most to me are are ones that the Supreme Court are probably not going to buy, but just as a sort of conservative lawyer, um, there's an argument about separation of powers called the non-delegation doctrine, where Congress, it's Congress's job to legislate. So if Congress uh, wants to set up a price fixing scheme, it's their job to actually set that up. But in this case, they have said, CMS, you do it. And they haven't really given them any guidelines. How do you set that first price? How what? How would you agree or disagree with a counter response? And then there are no procedural protections. If, um, if the company, the drug company doesn't agree, it's not like they can say, oh, you CMS didn't give us the right price because you didn't do this thing. You know, there's, there's, there's no standard and that standard list delegation is in theory, giving legislative power to the executive, which is a violation of separation of powers. Now that is a legal theory that in that exists, but it is not successful and it is not expected to be successful. But it is a darling of conservative lawyers. And so maybe this this is finally like one of those cases that's such an extreme delegation that the Supreme Court might go for it. Who knows? Yeah, and on that point, I, I initially was wondering about that. And so I uh, pulled up the Inflation Reduction Act provisions about that. I should point out that there there actually is a certain amount of guidance and I could see people maybe especially conservative lawyers saying not enough, but there is guidance uh, that's given to the HHS secretary about what this maximum fair price can be. And there are a series of criteria that are listed that HHS has to consider and so forth. So it's not, uh, I, I just wanted to be clear on this. It's not where uh, the Congress said HH, HHS secretary shall set the price and that would be almost I would agree with you that that would be a violation. I'm not not a conservative attorney, but I would say, yeah, that clearly violates non-delegation. But there are some there are a number of criteria listed here. And so to my mind, and I think probably what the courts will end up seeing is or agreeing with me on is that this is sufficient guidance given to the executive where it doesn't actually violate the, the non-delegation uh, clause of the Constitution. Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll see. I think that lack of um, procedural mechanism to challenge the price is partially what's driving this lack of delegation, because even if you don't, you know, however you're supposed to weigh whatever considerations, it almost doesn't matter. Um, so I think that that is an element of the issue. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of excessive fines clause, which I'm not very um, familiar with. So I'm not going to try and be a fake lawyer on that <laughs> one. But um, 
they're I, I, sort of related to the this is a fake negotiation argument is this due process Fifth Amendment argument, which is there's no notice and comment rights on the front end. So uh, CMS does not have to put out a rule saying, here's how we plan to set the price. Um, here's how we plan to go about doing it. Here's, you know, or even just a formula. Your company, here's, there's just no sense from these companies of what they're actually going to receive. And then there's no ability to challenge you didn't follow your perceived, you know, you didn't do the right thing on the back end. And that, that lack of fairness, I think they're arguing is lack of due process. Also, there is, at least in the Sixth Circuit, some language saying that um, under the Fifth Amendment, if you're going to set up a price control scheme, you have to, for, for due process purposes, you have to guarantee a fair and reasonable rate of return on investment. So um, at least the Sixth Circuit uh, plaintiffs are challenging that there's not any guarantee here. There, you, you might end up with a fair and reasonable rate, but there's no guarantee of that. Um, and the First Amendment thing, I don't really uh, find that it's going to go anywhere. But the the basic argument is at the end of this quote unquote negotiation, you have a take it or leave it. And the the companies are saying, if we leave it, then you're taking all of our money. So but if we take it, what we're doing is signing the negotiation. We're, we're signing this thing saying this is a fair rate that you've provided to us. We don't agree with that. We don't agree with presenting that to the public. We don't want to say that to the public. That's not our position. And yet you're forcing us into that. So that takes our First Amendment right. And I think that that's kind of crazy. I don't I don't see it being successful. And yet it is in everyone's arguments. So maybe it's less crazy than I think. Well, you know, I I, I think I am a little more skeptical about how these arguments will play. But I also know it only takes one district court judge to issue a nationwide injunction and one circuit court to, you know, keep, keep that going. And uh, I, I'm, I may be done trying to predict what Supreme Court will do on most, most anything. So we'll certainly be coming back to this issue because this is not a dead issue at all. And when it does, if, uh, if this were, I, I hope that you and I are back on the show again, so we can look back onto this and, and uh, of, course, of course, I'm hoping I say, I told you these arguments were meritless. And you could say, ah, oh, you know, I told you they were, there was something there maybe, but in any case, we will return to this, but for now, I think we will leave it and move on. Okay, so moving on, something very different. Um, this week, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell froze up on camera for the second time in just a little bit over a month. And I watched it and it was it was difficult to watch. It was kind of heartbreaking. And, you know, I think people from both sides of the aisle now are questioning whether or not McConnell is has the ability, is in a position to continue as the Republican leader in the Senate, which he's he's been since 2007 longest serving party leader in the Senate's history. And McConnell's 81. He has over three years left in his current term. And let's say he does step down. Uh, in 45 states, including Kentucky, what happens is that the governor appoints someone to fill a vacancy, and that's until either a special election or the next regularly scheduled election to fill the seat. But Kentucky's a little different. 
It's one of only seven states that have what's called a same party requirement. And that means the governor has to choose someone of the same party of the person who held the seat. And Kentucky actually requires that the governor pick from a list of three names submitted by the state party's executive committee. And this is a change that Kentucky put into place. Uh, they have a Republican supermajority in the legislature. They did this in 2021 because a guy named Andy Bashir was elected. He's a Democrat, was elected governor in 2019. And I guess they were concerned about something very much like this. And they didn't think Andy Bashir would be appointing a Republican to replace Mitch McConnell. I'm pretty sure they're right, unless Andy Bashir were forced to do that. So there are a couple issues here, I think, May. First, let's talk about uh, Senator McConnell. Uh, whether it might be time for him to step down and just any other thoughts you have about that? Well, um, I think Andy Bashir basically has guaranteed that even if it is time for him to step down, he's not going to because Andy Bashir, this is a Washington Post article that just came out, basically says he's not going to follow the law um, that Kentucky passed. I mean, he won't commit to it. He did veto it. He said it's unconstitutional. So you have to read between the lines, but. Um, there's a governor's race coming, you know, in a couple of months. And I think that that might dictate to me whether it's sure, yeah, time yeah. for McConnell to step down, because I really don't think this idea of the people of Kentucky elected a Republican. And because he froze twice, now they get a Democrat. That 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 switch to me is just too great. Um, and the precedent has been set, I think, um, by Feinstein, Fetterman, and even Biden, that you don't have to be fully functional in order to occupy the seat. So why would you spit on the voters of Kentucky like that and, and give them a Democrat when they elected a Republican? So currently, no, it is not time for him to step down, even if, even if he was like fully brain dead. Diane Feinstein styles thinks that she's in one state when she's in another um, can't respond. Yay. When that's the, what all she needs to respond. So um, yeah, in general, uh, you know, if, if your health, if your health doesn't allow you to be a Senator, then in general, yes, you should, you should step down. The people of your state deserve a working member of the U.S. Senate. Years ago, that probably mattered more than it matters now because years ago, like partisanship wasn't uh, like, it, you know, depending on which era of, of sure. you know, time you're, you're living in. But if we lived in a time where it actually mattered who was sitting there and not what party they were in, then Yes, like you want somebody who you can call, you want someone who's going to fight for your interests, you want someone who's drafting bills for you, um, all that. We just live in a different time where all that matters is your political affiliation. So why should it matter for the, the people of Kentucky, the people of California, the people of Pennsylvania, whether they have this individual or some, you know, young chipper individual, it's it's like sort of an indictment on our current state of Congress, not their age, but just like what their job descriptions are. Now, now of course, in McConnell's case, 
there, there's there's a there's the additional uh, problem or issue of well, he could still serve in the Senate without being the majority, without being sorry, the minority leader, and potentially, I think there's a there's a very good chance that the Republicans take the uh, take the Senate take back the Senate in 2024, and then by 2025, then that would be. You know, majority leader, and I, I wonder if, as a Republican, I'll let you speak to this uh, as 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 the one Republican here in this conversation. Do you think it maybe makes sense for him to retain his seat and keep that Republican seat, but uh, be removed from or resign from his uh, Senate leadership position? So, I have not worked in the Senate, but from the people, the Republicans who have. I think that he's more valuable as the Senate leader, even with health issues, than he is as a senator. Like, there is something about McConnell's ability to be both strong and firm and um, and unite various factions of the party without caving to any one of them and using that strongness and firmness to be like ultra MAGA or whatever the phrase is that people like to use. So they're uh, just his wisdom, his experience, his record of wins. He has earned a trust and um, he is able to get people to do things in his party that no one else would. So for me, um, so long as the man has any ability to carry that role out, to be um, like the the firm and trusted guy that the that Republicans can rally around, I I think he needs to be that, and because I think that is the fear in the Republican Party is that there is no one else who can adequately fill those shoes, who has the judgment that he had, who has the demeanor, um, who has both the ruthlessness, um, but also the, the, uh, personality and the touch that he has. So I, I wouldn't, I would definitely, I don't know. I think that the Republicans are wanting him to stay in his leadership position as long as possible because he's the only guy who can do it. So you don't think John Thune or someone could step up and do something more or less similar? Like I said, I'm not the Senate guru, but my friends who are in leadership Senate positions would tell you no. That's the that for conservatives, it's it's cocaine, Mitch, or the highway. Gotcha. Well, you know, and I, th- I I agree that it's important. I think we we see these events, and like I said, I, I've watched both of the freeze up things only once because they they were just even though I'm not a supporter of Mitch McConnell, that was just a, a horrible human moment, and. Uh, I think we sometimes put too much emphasis on those because someone can be very with it 80, 85, 90% of the time. And kind of to your point, still be incredibly valuable, but maybe at certain points fail. But given the nature of the work they do, that isn't, I mean, if they're, if they're an airline pilot, then no, that's not okay. But if they're in a job like McConnell's, or I would argue a job like Biden's or almost any uh, elected official, maybe that is not as big of a deal as we tend to make it. Now, I think a, a case like Feinstein's is a little different because it seems like from multiple reports that she is sort of not there 
a lot of the time, and that's when it becomes uh, becomes a bigger issue. But you know, speaking to the, I, I also wanted to say I agree with you on the point of well, Andy Bashir shouldn't be able to appoint a Democrat to replace a Republican when a Republican was the will of the people, and that's why, even though I, I certainly understand the partisan motives that led the Kentucky legislature to pass that change that they did. I think it's a smart, it's a fair and a more small D democratic idea that I would like to see more states implement. I, I particularly like Kentucky's idea that not only do you have to appoint someone from the same party, but you don't get to choose any old person like the most moderate Democrat or Republican if you're the other party. But you have to go with what, in this case, the state's party's executive committee picks. So you're constrained. I, I like that process. I think it is a more fair and a more small D democratic process. So uh, because uh, and I don't think that Andy Bashir has much of a legal leg to stand on based on what I've what I've uh, read and researched on this. And so I agree with you that it's sort of a an election year thing because Kentucky does its gubernatorial elections in, in off years. So but I, I don't think that's going to I don't think it's going to uh, succeed his challenge. And I think it's right that it doesn't. But well, yeah, we so agree. there you <laughs> go. But there's a larger issue I wanted to ask you uh, about on this because it it started me thinking about uh, age limits in Congress, especially the Senate. You know, with with six year terms, and this made this takes me back to U.S. term limits versus Thornton, uh, and this was a 1995 decision by the Supreme Court, a five to four decision that ruled that I believe it was uh, Arkansas, I think, could not impose term limits, which they kind of crafted as a ballot access restriction on for congressional races. Now, the only current justice on the court back then was Clarence Thomas. He was one of the dissenters. And the, the essence of the dissent was, uh, at least as I read it, was based on what's called the reserved powers of the Tenth Amendment, meaning that uh, if you read the qualifications clause, there's nothing that says that states are not allowed to add to these qualifications. There's nothing that in the Constitution that expressly prohibits the states from doing so. So therefore, under the tenth, under a, a reasonable reading of the Tenth Amendment, as far as Clarence Thomas thought, that meant that states could, in fact, impose additional restrictions if they chose to do so. And it seems to me that that logic would apply just as much to term limits. As it were, as it would to age limits, and I would argue that age limits might even be more sensible in some ways than term limits. But I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, so it's a Clarence Thomas dissent for a reason um, because it's very much not the law right now. Um, the courts have not really recognized the Tenth Amendment to mean anything. Basically, if uh, if you can make an argument that the Constitution um, allows it or speaks to it, then definitely Congress can do it. And and then the states, they, the states don't have any sort of extra oomph about reserved powers from the Tenth Amendment. It, it, it just interpreted as, hey, did everyone read the, the Constitution? Those are the things that Congress can do. That That is all the Tenth Amendment has uh, been interpreted to say. So, um, you know. But that's wrong. I mean, that's just, that's just flat out wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I totally disagree with that interpretation. You do too, right. obviously, right? I mean, so, yeah. I definitely do. My, I mean, my title when I was uh, 
deputy solicitor general for the state of Ohio, who was also director of the 10th Amendment Center, because there was this interest in how do we get the Supreme Court to flip its thinking on this issue and to say that the 10th Amendment might not have a lot of words, but it does recognize that there are some areas where the federal government can't invade and that that reserve power has to mean something besides, hey, did everyone go read the rest of the Constitution? That's what the federal government can do. So uh, we did not succeed in that project, but I do think it's something that uh, people are interested in. It, it just is going to be a little bit of a long road and maybe um, if uh, more states get interested in putting age limits, you can have another test case and we'll see what uh, this new Supreme Court has to say about the, ma- the matter. Um, because, yeah, I do tend to think that picking your own, uh, you know, who you'd like to serve your people has to, there has to be some amount of reserved power there. And I also agree with you that an age limit makes more sense than term limits. One thing I don't like about term limits is that it tends to mean that the staff run the show because you're only there for so many years. By the time you figure out how the process works, you're kicked out. But you know who's been there for 20 years? The general counsel of whatever agency, you know, Uh so they, uh, yeah. So if you want the staff to run the show, then term limits are good. But age limits seem to be a much better way of going about it. And I also like age limits because I think that people, when they are making policies, um, even if they're fully with it, they're like cognitively, they're Chuck Grassley, old, but really with it. He's not going to live under the policies that he passes. And I think there is something beneficial about having uh, some years left on this world that if, okay, are we really going to go to all EVs in 10 years? Okay. Like I, I want somebody who's actually going to have to live under that regime to be passing and thinking about it. And, and, you know, I feel like when people oftentimes think about what they what they think are constitutionality arguments, they're really talking about, is this smart policy? But they're they're such separate things. And, and, you know, there's that right, that famous line from from Justice Scalia saying he wished he had a stamp that said stupid, but constitutional. And I think, yeah, there there were plenty of things that under the 10th Amendment states could do to be like, oh, my God, this is a really dumb idea. But that doesn't that, that doesn't make it unconstitutional. Right. And, and so that's why I would, in fact, argue that I would extend this even further and saying that I do not see anything when I was thinking about this in the last few days and reading through the Constitution and, and the, the dissent in term limits versus Thornton, that wouldn't equally apply to setting an age limit for presidential candidates. I mean, there's there's nothing in the Constitution that expressly prohibits states from adding qualifications to the presidency either, nothing that expressly prohibits them from doing that. So therefore, it seems to me that if, if you know, Texas wanted to say, hey, if you're over 80, you can't run, that's, you can't be on our ballot at least. Uh, and after all, it's the states that elect the president, not the people or the people in the states, as much as maybe we might not want that to be the thing, at least on the left. I think that's a that's a reasonable legal argument, a reasonable constitutional argument, may, even if people don't think it's good policy. Yeah. I, 
I don't disagree. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so that's that's uh, that's something I, I did not necessarily expect that level that level of agreement. Well, obviously, if we both agree on this, we we it must be the true and correct path of, of things, right? So, at least that's what I'm going to assume at this point. So, there you go. But I, you know, and and I got to say, in terms of challenges to this, the court in 1995 was very different than the court today. And I got to think that it was a five to four decision in 95. Now, if they were hearing that case for the first time in 2023 or 2024, I think it goes almost certainly goes the other way. But the fact that there's that precedent there, that makes me wonder. And what what do you think? Because I think there is more respect for precedent, rightly or wrongly, on the court than maybe some people on the left have suggested. I mean, obviously, Clarence Thomas is just like precedent schmessident. I'm just going to do what I think the Constitution says. And maybe Sam Alito hangs out with him on that for a, a lot of stuff. But I don't get the sense that there's necessarily five or six justices who just are just willy nilly throwing out precedent. But on the same, by the same token, I feel like if you just give this argument theoretically to the court, I feel like almost certainly a majority of them say, yeah, Clarence was right back in 95. And so how do you think that shakes? What's your sense of how maybe that shakes out if, say, a state does impose a a term or an age limit uh, and it comes up to the Supreme Court? Do you you have a sense of what what might potentially happen there? I know that's a huge theoretical. Well, I mean, let's just say you do have Thomas staying consistent with his position um, and then I think you've got uh, Justice Gorsuch, who's somewhat anti-federal government, pro-local governments, whether that's Indian nations or states. Um, And then you have Brett Kavanaugh and the Chief Justice John Roberts, and they are both former feds and also uh, cling to precedent. So I think actually you get those two to join the liberals and all of a sudden there's your five. Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually, if it was just a precedent issue, maybe you could peel off the chief justice or justice Kavanaugh, but because their, um, their bent is also a little bit pro federal government um against like some sort of reserved power of the states in general like i think that they they see that as unwieldy maybe not in the election context but you could see it in for example the uh remain in mexico argument of like how is texas going to take over the federal government's role like they see an unwieldiness to giving too much weight to states' abilities to do things. And so you could see, well, what if states do this type of thing to elections? And what if they do that? I mean, they they will just be, I think, very against um, the potential monkeying around that states will do. I I, I hate that argument so much because it just feels like such such improper judicial activism. It's none of their business whether, to me, it's, it's not their business whether it's unwieldy or inconvenient. It's a question of what rights do the states actually have? But you don't get to say they have fewer rights or they can't exercise their constitutional rights because it would be inconvenient. That 
that ain't that as you can tell i'm kind of worked up about this because i guess you know i the 10th amendment means something to me even if it leads to outcomes that i don't necessarily agree with the principle of it I, that that idea that you would say well it's unwieldy so therefore we're going to pretend the 10th amendment doesn't mean anything boy that just irks me i got to say i'm all worked well, up um, I've always yeah. been I've always been a Tenth Amendment kind of I don't know not necessarily fanatic but it's 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 one of it's an amendment I kind of love I don't know why anyway so. well it's unfortunately been totally gutted to mean n absolutely nothing like even if you bring a complaint based on the Tenth Amendment it will simply be interpreted as does the federal government have the authority to act there will be there's no separate line of argument besides like there's also some sort of reserve power that it, it just doesn't even exist in the legal community right now as an available argument. Well, you know, I, I, I got to say, I can see if we're talking about like supremacy clause stuff and preemption and all that. OK, if the federal government has acted in, in some way and therefore fine, but that doesn't even come into play here. There's no federal law or any kind of federal action that says there cannot be be a age limit that would in any way invoke this. So this is strict. I mean, this is, a, I think this is just a real pure instant. I, I got, I got to stop because I'm just, my blood pressure is going up and I, this is how geeky I am, right? Cause the 10th amendment gets me this worked up. It's me. May, maybe I should just quit. I think at this point, but, and it's nice to know that, you know, you are, you understand where I'm coming from on this at least. So I do as, as does, the Ohio Attorney General. Well, there you go. That's a, I guess so I got some, I got some friends on this. I appreciate that. Well, well, with that, I, I seen my Tenth Amendment rant has kind of run us out of time. There's still so much we have to talk about. I mean, we want to get into Donald Trump's various trial dates and how they're going to affect the race for the presidency, the race for the presidency itself, uh, the the likelihood of a Biden impeachment inquiry, and a really interesting federal judge or uh, sorry, federal district court judges ruling on uh, gender identification and sororities, but that's all going to have to wait for the midweek show. And so if you're, if you're a supporter of the politics guys, that will be in your podcast feed uh, sometime around Tuesday morning or so. If you're not, we hope you'll consider becoming a supporter. Even if you're not, you get a little preview snippet thing, but if you'd like to get the whole thing. Think about becoming a supporter. You get that. You get ad-free versions of everything we do. There's there's our Discord where we have great conversations throughout the week. Other stuff as well. To check it all out, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also uh, support us through Venmo, PayPal. You can find all the links uh, on, in the show notes or at politicsguys.com slash support. But if you want the full midweek show and you're like, ah, sorry, I'm just not in a position to financially support the show. Totally not a problem. A number of other people are in that position. They've reached out to me, sent me an email, like at politicsguys.com. I've gotten them set up with the full midweek show. I'm happy to do the same thing for you. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really helps us out a lot. If you subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you use, share episodes on social media. I've been trying to do a better job of creating social media content that's maybe more shareable. So if you haven't checked that out, I hope you do and let folks know about the show. And finally, as always, a very special thanks to our fantastic executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. 
We'll be back with a new episode next week. We hope you join us.